a Dad's Net original podcast. Hi, I'm Michael. And I'm Paul. We're the Atwell Bryces and this is Diffability. The podcast for parents with children who have disabilities. We're the proud dads of two sets of identical twins, Lance and Lawson, our youngest. And Levi and Lucas, our older twins, who are diagnosed with autism and epilepsy, amongst other disabilities. In Diffability, we'll be helping you with tips and recommendations. And we'll be speaking to special guests and most of all, you'll hear that you are not alone in your journey. Hello and welcome back to the Diffability Podcast. Uh, we are delighted to be sharing our journey with all you fabulous listeners. Hi guys, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in again. So this week we've had some really, really good news. Fascinating news. It's amazing news. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. No, you may remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the post-16 provision for Levi and Lucas and they were going to offer 16 hours. So, having challenged the local authority and put our points across in the most professional, diplomatic ways... We had a phone call on Friday... ...to say that they have agreed funding for Levi and Lucas at their current provision until the age of 19. Full-time, yeah. We are delighted about this. Absolutely delighted. Yeah. And from this, what I would say to all you lovely listeners out there, if you've got a child with disabilities and special needs, do not give up. No matter how tired, how knackered, how exhausted you are, do not give up. No, definitely. Always challenge if you don't feel it's right. I mean, we were always told Ivan Lucas would go to school full-time until the 19, and then obviously they suddenly changed the goalposts. Um, Do you know what it reminds me of a little bit, which I've noticed recently? You know, older generation people where they're just about to (laughs) retire retire and and start claiming their pension and then the government moves the age. (laughs) That's happened to my dad and Maureen, hasn't it? My dad's partner. (laughs) Every time they're just about to get their pension, the government moved the age. So, yeah, originally, like, obviously (laughs) women should have been 60, then it went to 65, then 66, 67. It's like, when are they going to (laughs) retire? They're not. They're going to work for the rest of their life until they die. No, so we're, we're thrilled with that news because... It's the best outcome for the boys. You know, they've been at that school a long time. They do a lot with them. They've got the sensory rooms. They've got the professional staff. They've got all the facilities. And just to go two and a half days a week just wasn't right for the boys. And And being stuck to parents 24 hours a day, it's not healthy. It really isn't. No. And that's what we were obviously talking a lot about. You know, it's just not healthy at all. They need those change of environments, different activities. And their yeah, routine. Yeah, definitely. 100% down there. So, obviously, that's that part sorted. Um, but there is a lot of changes coming up in other sections. So, obviously, post-16, the move to adult services for other things as well. They'll and get, we have been telling the local authority, do not rush this. No, they'll move We're to... We're in no rush to do this. Adult services for neurology, for dental. Everything will start transferring over, which we are anxious about. And... As a guest today, actually, is Anna Kennedy, uh, OBE, and she's a massive advocate for autism. She's got her autism charity, Anna Kennedy Online. She was speaking to us about post-16 cusser to children with autism uh, and Asperger's. They they are obviously adults. She's gone through it, and she says, start it early. Don't leave it to last minute. Get your funding in place. Make sure everything's in place. Um, which we were we were left to the last minute with this. This was a new thing that the council's brought in, but we were straight on it. Don't don't let it hang about. 
the other thing we've had through is the boys moving from disability living allowance to PIP. So we've been sent two like Bible forms to fill in because now the 16 in the class as adults. And that in itself just makes me angry. The forms, yeah, yeah. the questions they ask. It's a joke. You know, um, one of the questions states, um, if we require the boys to come in and see us, would you be happy with that? 100%. And I would love a film crew to come and film this to show the world what they make children with disabilities go through. Non-verbal, double incontinent, life-threatening epilepsy, severe autism, all those things. I, wanting to interview them to yeah. see if they can start work. So we, we didn't realise children... That needs to be documented, I yeah. think, a lot more in um, kind of... We, we know friends where the children are severely disabled, uh, wheelchair bound, and they've made them go in for these interviews to prove that they need a disability living allowance or personal independence payment, which is PIP. Uh, now, PIP, so we've got to do all these forms now, and some of the questions is, can they feed themselves? What support do they need? Are they mobile? What support do they need? Can they wash and dress themselves? Can they prepare themselves a meal? Now, what are we supposed to say to that? Levi and Lucas can't prepare themselves a meal. They can't they can't, do they can't even that. open a bag of crisps. You know, they're severely autistic. They've got severe learning difficulties. It, it the just... reality to this is they can't even. We are still at that stage where we're trying to promote uh, hand-to-mouth Yeah, them just to hold their own spoon. And all these questions you get asked, and a lot of families will listen to this and resonate and some people that don't understand will be thinking, gosh, that's awful. But this, sadly, this is the system. Yeah. And this is why the system does need to change it's 100%. It's flawed, isn't it? So I, I was filling in Lucas's yesterday. And basically, I was putting Lucas cannot wash and dress himself. And he will never be able to because we know the boy's needs. Although they'll make progress in some areas... They'll never be able to dress themselves. You know your children, they'll never be able to wash themselves. And even if they were able to wash themselves, they couldn't be left in bath with their epilepsy if they had a seizure. So you feel like, what the hell are these questions? And, you know, they didn't, they weren't relevant to the boys. They can't dress themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't make themselves a sandwich. They can't, like I've just said, they can't even open a bag of crisps. They need support, full support in all areas. Dressing, bathing, feeding, activities, you know, and it just re it's really frustrating that the dare even ask these questions. But sadly, that is the system, and we obviously have to work with that. But, you know, we will do everything we can to try and highlight issues where it does need to And then it said, yeah, if you do get invited in for an interview, what facilities would you need? So our says they'd need access to a lift because they'll be going up in the chair. They'd need access to changing places in case we needed to change the pad, which is the fully adjustable bench, the top, everything in the in the room. And if you do invite them in for an interview, they won't be able to answer no questions or do anything that you ask them. So it'd just be a waste of time. So we'll see what happens. So basically, Levi and Lucas will just be really, really loud and vocal, making lots of different sounds. And well, the, panel, actually the panel will them, just yeah, yeah. look at Levi and Lucas and think, Yes, that's fine. We've made a decision. But you chose to put us through this yeah. as a family. But we were talking to the other day so that it's wrong. we were talking to someone the other day and a disabled person, they wanted him in for a passport interview because they were 16. And they were saying to him, look, you won't be able to interview him. Why are you making him, putting him through this stress? So they made him go into the passport office for this interview. 
And basically, the, they weren't even in two minutes. I think the person were just getting distressed, screaming, and says, "That's fine. That's all we need to see." But the the maiden come through for that. Um, stress a child or young person out to go through to the passport office to interrogate and ask them questions when they're they're not able, they're not mentally able to do that. Just to cause all that stress and distress, and then to say that's fine, we we understand now. We just go home, and it's like, why do that to them? But coming up later on the podcast, uh, we're going to be talking to Anna Kennedy and her knowledge is really, really useful and it's very clear to understand and the advice she has is very, very good. And what I learned from the interview with Anna was her her life, her challenges were very similar to ours as well. It seems like, yeah, so she was talking about like 1999 when she was dealing with her children and it seems like... I wasn't even born then. <laughs> there's not been much progress made from then. But you really enjoyed the Strictly bit. Anna's been on uh, the People Strictly. So there, there's a, a lot of chat about that as well, which Paul found fascinating. Yes, because as a lot of you lovely listeners know, I, re- I for years I've really wanted to get on Strictly. You know, and I gave up my whole dancing oh. career previously and I want to see if I can still do it. And represent all those families out there with children with special needs and disabilities and show the world that, you know, we can be <laughs> oh, there. Oh, actually funny, wasn't it? Because she did do Autism Dance Day for Anna Kennedy and he got his tap shoes out and he did a tap and then he were like... <laughs> yeah, and then after Michael stopped He needed to be on all life support. <laughs> and I think I needed to be put on a... Um, a ventilator. A ventilator. <laughs> Come breathe, could you? <laughs> and that was only, what, not five minutes worth of tapping but uh, stay with us because there's lots coming up on today's episode of the Difficulty podcast so we've had a question coming from one of our listeners well it's from liz from liverpool and hi liz her son is wheelchair bound permanently so she was asking about flying abroad how do you get them from a to b because the wheelchair wouldn't fit down the aisle um, and we've had direct dealings with it. We know how it all works. So we thought we can give some advice and it might help other people as well. Might just give other parents some reassurance if they are possibly thinking of yeah. traveling abroad in the future. I know one mentioned it on the Dasnet group saying it's it's okay more or less for Levi and Lucas because they have some mobility and we can help them to the sea. So here's what airlines do. They obviously have a welfare department that you have to liaise with prior to going and make them aware of all the needs of that individual child, health needs, equipment, mobility aids, and everything. It's quite a lot of work to do, but it's very worth it because it will make your journey so much smoother. I think this is relevant because it's holiday season coming up into it. Yeah. So if you've got a child that's wheelchair bound, your child will stay in their chair right up until that point of boarding the aircraft then at that point what happens is the specialist teams welfare teams specialist departments for an aircraft they have a a wheelchair which is designed to fit just down the aisles of an aircraft to get you from the aircraft door to your seat so that child or young person from the point of entering the aircraft will be transferred from their own chair obviously in their own time, as long as it takes, into the specialist aircraft chair to be able to push them down the aircraft through the aisles into their chair. 
Now, once you've done that, airlines also have specialist seats which go on an aircraft seat. I know for sure that um, <clears throat> Virgin and TUI... Or specialist harness, yeah. They have a seat which is called a Miru seat. We've used them once for the boys. And I'm sure it's spelled M-E-R-U. This is more like, I would say, a special needs car seat, which is sat on the aircraft seat itself. But then I also know, and I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know the name of this, but it's another kind of... Like a sheep, something to it. It's like a, a soft sheepskin. So if you've got a child with cerebral palsy, this is like a rug style thing that goes on the seat. And then once the child is in that, it's then pumped by a hand pump to pad around the child to keep them comfortable. Yeah, so basically... And we've seen yeah. those in operation ourselves. Yeah, so when we children. went with Cordwell children, there were a lot of special needs children on the aircraft because there were 25 families. So there, there were 25 special needs children. We're all different special needs, cerebral palsy, uh, missing limbs, life-limiting, life-threatening, all different conditions. And the airlines are really good. Um, like Paul says, there's a welfare team or they're called sometimes a special assistance team. Yeah. Just phone whoever you've booked your holiday with and ask to speak to the disability team, specialist team, welfare team, and they take it from there. So we've just started to recently do this. Paul's had to do all the measurements for the boys' chairs. Yeah, and at the time when you're doing it, it seems so boring and stuff, but it's absolutely worth its while. And the journey will be as smooth as possible. Do not stress as parents because the options for the equipment are there. I think some parents feel like they can't go abroad, but there is things out there um, like the specialist seating. Disabled people will always be boarded first. So they'll make sure you're comfortable, you're harnessed in, you've gone down in the specialist wheelchair, and but you'll be the last to leave the aircraft because they've got to get your own wheelchairs from under the hood all and but bring that, them back up. At that point, because Michael's just said you'll be the last to leave the aircraft. So if you've done a nine-hour flight and you're still sat on the aircraft and all the other passengers have gone and you're thinking, oh, no, no, no. Don't stress, because what happens here at this point is you're thinking, oh, they've all gone through passport control. They've all got their cases. When you get off, you're escorted straight to the front of the queue. There's like a disability line in there. And you pass all those that left the aircraft about half an hour ago. They're all staring and tutting and (laughs) spitting feathers, aren't they? (laughs) And you're you're thinking, oh no. That's our experience, isn't it? And that is our experience all the time. So we've booked the assistance in the airport. They've helped us get through security. We've had to get all the boys' meds out. They've got us through that faster. They can help you all the way with luggage. Um, that's at the airport and wherever you're going to as well. You need to book all this, so make sure you phone them up and ask for all this help. But you'll get extra help in the airport. You'll get help getting onto the aeroplane. You'll get help getting off the aeroplane. You'll get help with your luggage. Um, but just make sure you you phone up and ask about this because you do have to book it all in. I hope within all of that information, you kind of get some understanding and feel a bit more reassured. And th- yeah, and then also when, when we go to America this time, uh, once we get ready to transfer to the hotel, because we've booked all this and made them aware of it, Levi and Lucas will be able to stay in their chairs and they'll be able to be clamped down in the coach 
for the transfer to the hotel. So don't think you can't go. There is extra stuff out there, especially for children. We like postural problems that need to be strapped in, um, strapped up so they're secure or the extra padding and stuff. Airlines do have all this, um, but you, you just do have mi- to tell you something very quickly though. Changing children on the aircraft, I think we covered that. Mm. But airlines are excellent when it comes to changing. Uh, Obviously, there's never going to be like a change in places toilet on an aircraft. It's just not. Maybe big we should get an airline to do that. But but they do go out of the way like two eight open two toilets up and turn them into one long one. They'll give you blankets to put down on the floor so you're not laying on a dirty floor. Sometimes you'll do it in the galley. They'll shut the curtains. There'll be a member of staff at each curtain, making sure nobody else comes through. They've always been excellent with us, um, Virgin, Tui, and even when it was Thomas Cook. So we've never had no problem. So yeah, make sure you just book that in. Later on, we have part one of our interview with a fantastic Anna Kennedy OB for you. We love this interview so much, there wasn't a single thing we wanted to cut out. So we decided to split it over two episodes for you. So now we're at the section of the uh, podcast where we like to recommend something that's helped us that might also help other people. And uh, this week, we've had them a few years now, we'd like to recommend the boys' specialist beds. Because when obviously we're doing Instagram videos and stuff, people often message us about mm. Levi and Lucas's beds. So these are specialist rise and fall beds. They also have the profiler, which obviously has the tilt within it. And these are from a company called Theraposture. Uh, we found these beds, the high-sided padded beds. And um, we They're want- like an adult cot bed, aren't they? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But we wanted them to be as child-friendly as possible. And I think we kind of chose the leather colours, didn't we? You wanted them in white as well. Yeah, because I just thought white would look so much better. Personal opinion, some people might prefer pine. Yeah. Or well, whatever. Pine. But, you know, I personally just prefer, I just prefer white. Why, what, white what, what matter with pine? Well, it's just personal opinions, Michael. No, yeah. so the boys' beds, we wanted them Mr. Tumble type style, so they're all different colours. I remember when we did Shop Well for Less Christmas special with Steph McGovern, and somebody were, a few were messages on Twitter where the boys' beds from because they'd seen them on the TV programme. And uh, we tagged a lot of people in that then for fairer posture. So they're on more social media on the internet, but they do all specialist beds. Um, you can personalise them, you can have them higher, lower, like Paul said, different coloured wood pine if you like you can change the leather fabrics you can have all one color i think what's good as well they've got like a sealed blue mattress so obviously sometimes children with special needs have accidents they can soil smear uh, leak the nappies and you can, they're fully wipeable so you're not having to mess about getting new mattresses all the time you can wipe them down with like sanitize them down wash them all down they're, they're really easy to wipe down and keep clean aren't they one of so the best products we've that's actually had. this week's recommendation but do send any more stuff in that you find useful on either messages on our instagram or put it on the dad's net special needs group and we'd like to recommend what's helping you and next up we have part one of our interview with the lovely anna kennedy obe she's got an amazing story to tell she has done some amazing work 
We are joined by a very special lady today on the Disability Podcast. The amazing, the wonderful, the very outspoken, the very knowledgeable, wonderful lady that is Anna Kennedy, OBE. Hello, Anna. Oh, hi. I don't know. Thank you for the introduction. I'm not sure about it all, but hey. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. It's been a bit of a tough weekend. Angelo's going through a little bit of um, health issues, let's just say, and it's really difficult to try and get appointments. I've been waiting for a scan. You know what it's like when it's, you know, you're trying to get things done. So, yeah, I think I'm going to have to rattle some cages. Let, let, let's just... I just need to say, if you can hear background noise, we've got builders in, so... And these builders don't seem to be bloody going away. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so profound apologies. I think some of our listeners are kind of used to this now. But I just want I just want to quickly give a rundown to our listeners who might not know the work you actually do. Okay. So it's really important that they kind of have a bit of a backstory about who you are and what you're all about, Anna. Okay. Do you want to do that yourself? Yeah, why not? Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm Anna Kennedy, and I'm a parent to two adults. I can't believe I'm saying it. Um, Patrick's 32. He's got a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, and Angelo's 29. Um, he's autistic, got quite significant sensory processing condition, and nocturnal epilepsy, hence why I'm up a lot of the night, and we're part of what we call the Wide Awake Club. So chatting to parents <laughs> in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, but hey, that's just how autism presents itself in my family. So um, I've been fighting for my boys since they've been young. Um, they were diagnosed very early. Angelo was diagnosed um, at two and a half. Um, he passed all the milestones. He was talking, doing everything he was supposed to do, and then he lost everything. It was like someone came and just took everything away from him. His speech, his eye contact, he didn't want to be touched. Every time I touched him, he just used to scream. And being an Italian mom, you're very much touchy-feely, you know, my son and all the rest of it. And it was really heartbreaking to see that he just lost everything. And I, looking back on photographs, when I see him with his brother and that, you could see he's so there. You know, there's a picture of him that I can think of at the minute where he's in the car, jumping up and down, laughing, looking at me. He just lost everything. And it's just like, if you haven't been there, you don't really get what I'm talking about. It's just awful. So I didn't know what was going on. I thought, well, I've done something wrong. Um, but we were going through um, a difficult process as well with Patrick. He was um, very premature. He was only two pounds when he was born. So I had preeclampsia and toxemia for both pregnancies. I had the worst pregnancies. Um, so I had Patrick very, very early. He went through lots of different difficulties. He had the last rites. He had blood transfusions. He had whooping cough. He had septicemia. You name it. He was just going through it all. And I just seemed to spend the first three years of my life in hospital with uh, Patrick. And then I had Angelo. And then I was very ill with him. So I spent 10 weeks in hospital with um, before Angelo was born. So uh, my son Patrick went to my mum in Middlesbrough, probably picked up I've got a northeast twang because uh, I didn't know really anyone that could look after Patrick for me. And he stopped speaking to me on the phone. Um, and I think it was because it was like, you left me, all this sort of thing. So that was heartbreaking as well. So, I, But I always remember um, when he came back home, we lived in a, a one-bedroomed house. And um, the third day, Patrick came back and he came to run to me. And then he saw the Moses basket 
looked because he was only three then thinking what's that <laughs> why is that person here you know but it's just like all these sort of different things that happened you know but um there obviously he loves his brother now and um he was very very loving towards angelo but we had very very you know tough times at the beginning Patrick being bullied at school, he was diagnosed when he was four with Asperger's syndrome, but we didn't know. The consultant paediatrician didn't tell us. We found yeah. out by accident having, after having three years of him kicking, screaming, getting all of the steering wheel. Don't take me to that place. Drawing pictures of himself with steam coming out of his ears with his school uniform on. Um, drawing, he used to get cornflake boxes mixed. Uh, detonators out of them with two pencils he was going to blow the school up because he was having such difficulties he used to say things like there's a big mouth every time I go into the school and it swallows me up every time I go in there and then we discovered later on it was the hall doors so every time the hall doors went and they were going into assembly he found that obviously very very stressful he didn't like it when they used to scrape the chairs on the floors or when they started clapping you know I've said somebody won an award or whatever so all of these diff different things that Patrick was really struggling with. So we, you know, I tried everything to try and help him settle, but I didn't know he had autism at the time. And in the meantime, I was going through the diagnosis of Angelo. So um, there was one particular day that um, a meeting was called. And then that's when I found out that my son had Asperger's syndrome. And the um, head teacher said to me, oh, Mrs. Kennedy, because a letter was sent to them. Why didn't you tell us? that you had, your son had Asperger's. I said, because I just didn't know anything about it. And I've just found out now. And I, I still remember that feeling of like blood rushing from my feet to my head thinking, wow, why didn't I know this? Why didn't anyone tell me? I started getting angry as well. And I couldn't really concentrate on the rest of the meeting. But at the end of the meeting, they just said they couldn't meet Patrick's needs. So I ended up with having two boys um, at home. They also said they couldn't meet Angelo's needs. Um, and they were just getting five hours home tuition per week. So we turned our little garage into a little classroom and um, they sent um, a very, very lovely, lovely lady, which I ended up employing, Vanessa, um, who was working with Patrick. But then um, there was a lady that started working with Angelo and she'd never worked with a child with autism before. And then she just sat on the carpet. She started crying. She said, I don't know what to do. So that made me feel frustrated because I was all the books I was trying to read, as parents do. Once you get through that, oh, they've been diagnosed with autism. What's that all about? No one sat with me. Nobody told me what it was all about. You know, I was thinking, well, I never heard of it before. All I knew was like the cliche of Rain Man. I thought, are they going to grow up to be like Dustin yeah. Hoffman? No, I'm going to throw matches on the floor and they're going to be able to tell me how many matches there are, all that sort of thing. There's no one, you can imagine in the early 90s, nobody knew anything about it. I hadn't met any parents. Um, so then um, what happened was I bumped into another parent that was um, in the town. I always remember her son was having, um, it looked like some sort of sensory meltdown and she was really struggling. So I had Angelo and the buggy and Patrick and I went up to her and I said, is there anything I can do to help you? Because I sort of recognised it and they could see she was close to tears. And then she told me that her son had been diagnosed with semantic pragmatic language disorder and all also been on the autism spectrum so we started chatting um because something else that happened to me was that when we were going through the diagnosis going through the statementing process i was told then by my statementing officer that my two sons were the only boys in hillingdon that had autism which made me feel really really isolated and i just thought again like you know what am i going to do when am i going to find out reading all books 
talks about how early intervention is really crucial for kids on the spectrum. The earlier you work with them, looking at all these different strategies of working with kids. And I was thinking, I think I counted about 17 strategies in the end. I thought, well, how do I know which is the best one for Patrick? which is the best one for Angelo, because they're both very different from each other. Mm. So um, what happened was uh, I thought there must be other families that have got kids on the spectrum. So I, I wrote a letter to a local newspaper, the Uxbridge Gazette it was, and I always remember the lady, Barbara Taylor Fisher, sorry, Barbara Fisher, and she, we're still friends now, 30-odd years down the line, and I wrote her a letter and I just said, there must be other parents that are going through what we are going through, but there's no support, yeah. So she put a little article in the newspaper and that's when 275 families wrote to us to say that their kids were on the spectrum, their adults on the spectrum, they were in the mental health unit, all these different families. And I thought, considering my kids were the only two, there you go, 275 families. So we set up a support group, to cut a long story short, and then from the support group, lots of other parents again had their kids at home, um, just getting a few hours home tuition, no respite care, having to give up their jobs, juggling, you know, all of that. And it's still happening today, I'm sad to say. Yeah. Um, they, um, we decided that we needed to do something about it. So there was a gentleman in the group and he told me about a school that they were going to knock down and build 37 flats. And it was actually near where I live. And if you didn't go down this like windy road, you wouldn't know that it was there. So I, I said, oh, I'm going to have a look at it. And I remember I had a pencil skirt on at the time and a T-shirt. And I walked down this path. And I saw this school and it had smashed windows. It was a school for children that had physical disabilities and the doors weren't wide enough. So that's why they were going to knock it down and build another school for the children that were there. And then I thought, well, why don't they widen the doors? Isn't that like an easier yeah. option? So what I did was I climbed over the fence and I was looking through the window and there was like a big hole in the roof and there was like bushes growing through it. And I just thought, this is perfect. We could do something with this. So I approached the local authority and I spoke to a lady called Mary Milne, who was head of client services. She was actually looking after my two boys at the time. And I just said, there's a school there. Is there any chance that that could be a school for kids who are autistic? There's all these families that I'm in yeah. touch with. They're really struggling. And she just said, oh, let me see what I can do. So anyway, she spoke to the local authority. They really put us through the mill. They said we had to um, convince um, the local authority that a school would be better than 37 flats. Um, we had to put a business plan together. We had to raise £627,000 worth of refurbishment in order to them to lease it to us. We had three grand Did in you, the bank. Can I just stop you there, Anna? Did you have a timescale where you had to um, get the money together? Um, well, what happened was, first of all, we had to convince the council to say that it wasn't, you know, just too many uh, housing going on around okay. where we were and all the rest of it. So what we did was we started going to visit councillors and um, started finding out where they used to buy their newspapers and um, cigarettes and what happened. We used to wait outside for them and just say, we've got this idea and this is how this is what we did. And it was like quite a few parents. Um, so in the end, we put this business plan together. We spoke at the um, council meeting and then it, it did get overturned to say, and the, I remember the chap who was, the, who was doing the building work and all the rest of it, he was not happy that it got overthrown because obviously he wanted to build his 37 flats. When you so say we, who do you mean by we? Is it me, uh, my is husband, it... Sean, um, who just got a degree in economics and management, which was great for the business plan. Or the parents, grandparents. Yeah, there was a whole load of families that were that's, like in a similar situation. That, it's massive that what you did at that time, then, isn't it? I, I know that. Yeah, it was very grandparents. 
wasn't it? Yeah, it was definitely. It was very scary, know, yeah. very scary because I've never done anything like that before. You know, I um, I'd never done anything. I I was working at Sanderson's at the time, which was a textile and manufacturer, um, and I was teaching dance in the evening, like exercise and dance and stuff. And um, yeah, it was very scary. But I'm a I'm much a person that if I want to do something. I'll just keep going until I get there. I'm very like focused and it's just like no one's going to get in my way type of thing. I've always been like that. And um, my husband like kept sort of hopping from one foot to the other. And I remember his mom was saying, oh, we're going to lose our houses, you know, if you get this school because of all oh, the blah, blah, blah. So anyway, in the end, um, it took um, them about nine months for them to agree that they would lease the school to us for 30 years. We had to go to a bank. We had to prove that we had £627,000, which we didn't. Um, I spoke to the bank manager who used to teach kids with autism, and um, he helped us. And what he did was he wrote a letter in a way to say that we would have access to this money, but we we, we weren't. It was just so we could get the lease. So anyway, you, you know what you usually find, and I'm not sure if you find this, that people who usually help you are people who've been at, either teachers or they've been in a similar situation themselves or they've been touched by autism that's i usually find those are the people that help you i, I don't know if you yeah. found that as well but yeah yeah so anyway um they gave us the keys to the school um on my son's birthday it was patrick's birthday on january the 5th 1999 we had a three-year business plan and we managed to do it in nine months because i was going to like uh, British Airways, British Airport Authority. I was going to various, like the, I went to the Navy. I went to anyone that would listen to me, the probation service. Can you help us? Can you help us? And we did it all for 90 grand, not 627. And um, it was just amazing when we did it. We opened it up after nine months and 19 children came through the door. It was just like such an amazing feeling. And we didn't have any security or anything like that. Um, and we actually lived really close to the school. So when the alarm went off, I could hear it in our bedroom. So I used to wake my husband, Sean, up and said, quick, the alarm's gone off at the school. <laughs> Get up and go to the school. So we were the security for quite a while until we could afford something. Because, you know, we did have um, a few things where they were broken in and someone tried to steal the washing machine and stuff like that but yeah. you know we managed to get through it was like it would have been like a good series a comedy series for some of the things that we went through it was quite funny but hey we got through it all so it's now 25 years old nearly 24 25 years old and um, hundreds of children have been educated at the school um, I uh, no longer involved with the school I did it for 23 years and I thought right you know I've done it now uh, in in the middle of all that, I set up a college as well, a vocational college where Angelo goes to now. So again, I'm not involved in the running of that, but Angelo's now, you know, he's got a place to go. He's working on his independent living skills. Uh, we also owned another school as well, a bit later on down the line, and a respite um, service. So, um, and then the charity uh, was opened in 2009. And that's when parents were writing to me saying, oh, we can't get a diagnosis. We're trying to find the right school. No one's listening to us. All those sort of things that I went through were still happening sort of in 2009, which was like 10 years down the yeah. line. So that's why I decided to open Anna Kennedy Online. Um, and I just wanted to point parents in the right direction um, or help them as much as I possibly could. Um, and then this is when the events started happening because um, – the very first, um, I suppose, campaign I did was about bullying. Uh, so I, start, I set up an anti-bullying campaign called Give Us a Break. 
was working with Esther Ranson and the Anti-Bullying Alliance. Um, and um, we did this campaign and it's still going today. Um, at that time, the NSPCC, um, this was uh, quite a long time ago, they had no information whatsoever on autism on their website. So um, there was a, a young man called James Hobley, who's one of my um, charity um, patrons, um, and he was on um, Britain's Got Talent. And uh, he did really, really well, and he got in the last seven. The Hoff absolutely loved him. He was just everywhere. Um, and he spoke about being autistic. Um, so we did a little story about him on the NSPCC website because we thought people would associate and remember him yeah. because of Britain's talent. And he spoke about how he was getting bullied at school, how paint was thrown over him and all that sort of thing, and how because he wanted to do dancing, people used to bully him and all the rest of it. Um, and I'm pleased to say he um, is a professional ballet dancer now. He's amazing. Wow. He's just, oh, he's just, you've got to see him. He's just amazing. Um, so um, that's how the anti-bullying campaign started. And it's just been going ever since. So what I do every year is I give um, the project to one of my ambassadors who are autistic or a charity champion or a patron. And I say, right, this is your project this year. So what you're going to do to raise awareness about autism so we had um, Russell first of all who he was got he got bullied at school he created a film and it went viral and it was all over like the Daily Express and he did it with this like mobile phone and a, a camera that was um, on a wobbly tripod leg and he, what he created was just amazing and um, it yeah, I'm so proud of him and he now looks after my YouTube channel and he's also in a band called Blythe Road which is doing really really well it's a metal, uh, a metal, rock metal band, and it went, went to number one on Spotify. And Chris Moyles of publicising them. He's done so well, considering from where he, he came from. If you know what I mean, he, he didn't even know anyone who was autistic before, but now he's much more confident now, and he's with this band. So I'm really, really proud of Ryan Russell. He's called Ryan, but he changed his name to Russell. Um, and um, yeah, I've got so many ambassadors that were really fantastic role models. You've met one of them, Aston, on Gateway Radio. He's amazing. I think uh, that, that's what's like we've noticed is really good with you. Like you get people on the spectrum involved and they're very much involved, aren't they? With all your different projects, autism, got talent. Oh um, God, the, I love autism, it's got talent. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's where we're at. Some yeah. questions I've talked to you about. Okay. I think you might know what's kind of come in here. So... My background, obviously, I was a pro dancer prior to becoming parents. And I've been dying to talk to, to you about all of this. And we have some similarities here, don't we? Because you have a love for dance as well. And I previously, I have seen quite a lot of your uh, dance moves in your office, which I do. Yeah, this is <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and uh, also, I do know you're very good at tap too and then um, obviously you have been on the people strictly tell our listeners about that i am so jealous of this because you know and a lot of our listeners and followers know that my goal is to get on strictly as a disability campaigner because you know i kind of gave it all up is it 20 years ago now obviously because the boys needs we physically couldn't go to work or do anything we had to be there for the children so tell us about how all that happened i'm very intrigued now um okay so to start off with i think everyone should dance i just think it's the best feeling ever it keeps you feeling young 
Um, I started dancing when I was about six. I was, used to tap my feet under the desk all the time and drive the teacher mad. So she said to my mom, um, Maria, you need to take your daughter dancing. She's driving me around the twist. She's constantly tip-tap, tip-tap, tip-tap. I actually think I've got ADHD because my brain never stops. It's just constantly going all the time. So um, anyway, I went to a dance class and I absolutely loved tap dancing. I loved the rhythms. I loved everything about it. I had a very strict dad, Italian dad, and um, he just never would let me go anywhere, never let, would let me go to friends' houses and all the rest of it. And that was my escapism. It was just, I felt like a different person. I just loved it so much. So I started tap dancing and I started doing a bit of jazz. I did acrobatics for a little while. Um, and it was just, I just loved the way it made me feel. So I progressed. Um, I went into like dance competitions, tap dance competitions up here, like Northeast Dance Tap Championship, all that sort of thing. My mum used to make my costumes for me as well. She used to design them and everything. Um, and then um, I got into disco, which I absolutely loved. I was in the EMI Disco Dance Championships. Um, I won the Northeast one. Um, and then after that, when I, the boys came, um, I didn't dance for like 10 years. And the reason being was I was so focused on my boys, yeah. like everything that was going on, the school. I just couldn't think of anything else. Yeah. I felt yeah. like something was missing out of my life. So someone said to me, why don't you start going back to dance classes? You don't do anything for yourself. You just autism, autism, autism. Should you need an autism-free zone type of thing? So I saw an article that said tap for fun. And that's when I started tap dancing again and then doing um, a few little shows. It was just like, it was about, 70 ladies aged between sort of 20 to right up to 83. We used to have a good laugh, you know, put shows on in the local theatre. And then obviously um, we're in the office and um, little unbeknown to me, um, it was advertised about the people strictly. They've never done anything like that was going to be open to the public. So um, apparently they nominated me and they said trying to keep it a secret for me was just like really difficult because when I'm in the office, I like to know what's going on. And there's only Lisa and I in the office. And um, anyway, she said um, that they put my name forward. There was something like 11,000 people were entered. It was like loads of people. Yeah. So then um, they narrowed it down to 25 and I got in the last 25. So they wanted to find out more about me, but without me knowing. So they would like ring Lisa. And sometimes I was in the office and then she'd pretend to go to the toilet or go to the car park or whatever it was. So she'd speak. Uh, and what they wanted to do was they wanted to meet me, but under a false pretense of that they were creating an ident and it was about dance and about people who love dancing. So um, then Lisa, I got an email saying, oh, we're creating um, an ident about dance. Um, we'd like to meet you and we'd like you to come to Shepherd's Bush. I think it was Shepherd's Bush that I went to. Anyway, off I went. There was some people waiting um, in the waiting room. And then I went into this room. It was really strange. And they sat me down with like um, a light on, on me. And they just said, we just want to ask you a few questions. So they were asking me questions about dance, why I love dance so much. What did I do? Talk about the charity, all of that sort of thing. So they said, we're going to ask you to do something. It might seem a bit strange, but as a dance choreographer on the screen, he's going to do a few steps and he's going to want you to follow him. So I thought, all right, then. I thought, this is a bit weird. So anyway, he started doing uh, steps to Footloose. So um, I start, I did it. And they said they were amazed that I picked it up just like that. And they said all the others, they just like 
hadn't picked it up so quickly. So they said that because of the filming that they were doing in the background, they made they wanted me to do it again. So they said, oh, could you do it again and just do it a little bit more, you know? Because I was thinking, it was just really weird dancing in a room in front of a screen with someone with a camera. Because obviously I'm thinking, what's this all about? So anyway, I did it and then I came out. And then um, Lisa said to me, you know, how was it? I said, oh, it was, it was good. I said, but it was a bit weird. So she said, oh, obviously she knew what was going on. So anyway, they chose me, they chose six out of the 25. Again, it was a big secret. So they said, right, we have all the six people they had to tell them and surprise them in a different way. So mine was that every year I try to get tickets for Strictly. And you know what it's like. You try and get tickets to something like 1.7 million people um, apply. So anyway, um, it was going to be that my, tic- my sister had applied for tickets and she'd won two tickets. So she was going to tell me, because um, we were out doing the AK Autism Expo. So um, they'd all like, had this little whisperings going on. And then when I went in for my lunch, like 10 minute break, they said, my sister's going, hey, Anna, I've won two tickets to Strictly. I said, you haven't. She went, yes, I have. So I thought, oh, my God, that's just amazing. So anyway, got a letter saying that, you know, I was going to Strictly and all the rest of it to watch the show. And it was all planned in the background. So my sister had to not give the game away. She said it was really hard. So we got into a taxi. Apparently there were secret cameras in the taxi. <laughs> and my sister was trying really hard not to give it away. And the taxi driver was in it as well. And I had, when he had to drop me off at three o'clock. But if he got there early, he had to keep driving around until... I got off at three o'clock. So anyway, there was no traffic. And normally on the way to um, L3 Studios, there is a bit of traffic. So he got there about quarter to three and he just said, oh, I'm a bit early. So I thought, it's all right. You know, I can get, to get we can get out and we can walk because, you know, you had to go into a queue and all the rest of it. So he went, oh, no, no, no. He said, uh, you might you might have to wait a long time. Don't worry, I'll, I'll have a little drive around. Oh, that's a bit strange. Yeah. Taxi driver yeah. driving around. Anyway, got out. And there was cameras um, and uh, my sister took me to the wrong queue. She was supposed to take me to the queue of people with reserved tickets. Um, I can't remember what it was called now, but it's this particular queue. But So she took me to the wrong queue, which was the longer queue, but she couldn't get, they couldn't get her attention. So we were standing in this queue. So there was this cameraman walking up and down and like pretending he was filming everybody. And um, anyway, then we went in and then we sat down. And then when we sat down, I thought, wow, you've got really good tickets. We were sat right next to the stairs. We went up on the front row. And I was thinking, oh, this is amazing. So anyway, uh, before the show started, they said, oh, we've got something special that's happening. Um, Anton and... Um, Oh, what's that lady's name? You know, with the can't remember her name. Uh, they're going to do, they're filming for another show and they're going to be doing um, just a little bit of a, a few seconds dance routine just so we can film it while they're here and then we'll get on with the show. So Anton came out and then he's doing this little thing and then all of a sudden it, it, it went like that in the middle. And then my sister was looking at me and apparently they'd rehearsed this quite a few times to make sure I could see it, but I did not see it. It was my head in the middle of the dance floor and it said it's you Anna Kennedy but I didn't see it I was too busy like looking around and then you know where they sit up on the balcony area it said it's you Anna Kennedy I didn't see that either my sister was looking at me thinking what the hell she's she hasn't seen it. so in the end she had to sort of go like that to me and point well my face was like a picture it was just like and that photograph of me going just went everywhere it was just like oh my god it's just everywhere. So then all of a sudden, um, um, Max Brannan, um, what's his name? The person who plays Max Brannan, 
um, on EastEnders. Yeah. So stood by that was his year that he was doing Strictly, and he said, um, "Anna, I'm going to be your mentor." And I just looked at him and I thought, "Mentor for what?" And he said, "You're actually going to be in Strictly." So Tess and Claudia then came to get me. They got hold of my arm, and I felt when I got up, I felt like I was going to pass out. So they just like grabbed hold of me and took me to the middle of the dance floor, and, um, and then all, all my family, my friends were hiding in the background, oh. and then. So we'll leave it right there for this interview. For this week, just so much to cover, and we didn't want to miss any of it out. So make sure you join us next week for part two, where Anna will talk about what it's like getting her OBE. How exciting! Don't forget to like, follow, share, and subscribe. So if you subscribe to us on whatever you listen to on your podcast, whichever one you you tune into, subscribe, and it'll remind you when the next one's out. And, you know, I said this before on the podcast, you know, we're here, we're just a family trying to, you know, at times make light heart of the situation we're all in. And humour does work for us so much, you know, and there are days when it's tiring and you're exhausted and, and you feel like you've got nobody to turn to. Please do send us a message. You know, and we can all support each other in one way or the other. Yeah. Don't, don't forget to like, share and subscribe to us. And also we are available on all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and TikTok. TikTok. We haven't got many TikTok followers. We are now so. on LinkedIn as well. <laughs> if yeah. you want to connect with us that way, if you're what we class as a pro. Professional. Professional. You can link, you can contact us that way as well. But thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Disability Podcast. Don't forget to Disability. check the dance out on <laughs> on whatever the hell on this. You called you called it Disability Podcast. Diffability. I said diffability. It didn't. I said diffability. So check it. Yeah, don't forget tune into. It's the, the Diffability Podcast. That's right. And uh, we shall speak to you soon. But next episode, there's lots more coming up. So you don't want to miss the next episode because that is really exciting.